0: Remember the last time? We told you not to feed them after midnight. We told you to keep them away from the light. And the most important warning of all, we told you to never,
1: ever get them wet. You didn't listen.
0: Every journey begins in the mind. Ah!
1: A flight of imagination. Ah! A vision of what might lie across the universe. Right, or within the deepest regions of the subconscious. Ah! Dr. Edward Pretorius is about to embark on such a
0: journey. <laughs> it's out of control. You've got to turn it off. 4 years ago in this quiet forest in this cozy cabin something happened something so frightening something so deadly something so evil we prayed it would never happen again <laughs>
1: I love horror movies, man. I love trailers like that. Um, And if you have been listening to the show, you know that uh, I do a lot of directing of horror and sci-fi horror. Uh, It's what I grew up on. It's what scared me as a kid. I mean, there is nothing better than designing a series of scares that an audience reacts to. I absolutely love it. I live for it. Uh, That's why I'm in this business. And one of, the cool, one of the coolest parts about horror movies to me are the creatures, creature effects. Um, and I know that uh, many of our listeners and many audience members out there are completely divided. There are people uh, who uh, blame a lot of stuff on CGI, people who adamantly hate CGI. And uh, there's a whole generation of us that really uh, want to push for the practical effects. Uh, my philosophy has always been, and continues to be, Uh, that everything is a tool. Everything is a tool for the story. Everything is a tool for the tone, for the mood. Um, And whatever. sometimes there are certain tools that work better than others. Um, I do love practical effects. Uh, I do like having things on set for actors to respond to. Uh, And selfishly, I like to have stuff happen in front of the camera that scares us while we're watching it on the monitor. I uh, really enjoy getting that first round of scares early Uh, Watching it with the crew Um, But I still think that a lot of really fantastic advancements with CGI and with compositing have uh, been uh, necessary for blending the practical effects with the stuff that you can't really do in real life Um, And uh, I don't think it just comes down to one being better than the other I think that CGI gets a pretty bad rap because Uh, Most people don't actually know what is CGI and what is compositing effects and what is actually a blend of them both. Uh, There are directors that do this really well. I think uh, uh, David Fincher is one of those uh, where you're watching his movie and you have absolutely no idea when he's doing CGI stuff and when he's not. He's gotten really seamless and really great with it. Uh, But then you have the opposite end of that spectrum. The movies with giant robots that are fighting each other and it's completely obvious that that is not something real and I think for some people uh, it can take them out of the movie and at the end of the day it's all about suspension of disbelief right like we're trying to convince an audience that this thing that they're seeing on a flat surface is actually a world that you can walk up to the movie screen and stick your hand into it and disappear into a narrative disappear into this other created universe that is done and the the most successful of films, whether it is a horror, whether it is sci-fi, or if it's a comic book movie, are those movies that base it all on some sort of core emotional context, some sort of core emotional moment that we can relate to. Um, and with uh, horror movies, it's a bit, I don't want to say it's easier, it's just a lot more fun because everybody is scared of something. And a lot of us are scared of the same things like, you know, being afraid of the dark, being afraid of the unknown. Um, I'm completely terrified of dreams and what happens in the subconscious. I think that's a fascinating new uh, Wild West that we really haven't been able to explore yet. And as we uh, develop as a nation and as we develop as a world there are fewer and fewer places that haven't been explored that haven't been explained. Um, so it's getting harder and harder um, to tell scary movies. Uh, well, you know what? That's not necessarily true though. Cause if that was true, then these movies wouldn't be so successful. I mean, uh, one of the cool parts about horror and making horror films is that it is still uh, a genre that is screened in theaters, which why the hell else make a movie unless you're going to show it in theaters and actually experience it with people? But that's a whole other podcast. It's a whole other thing to jump down. Um, so, today's episode is really exciting for me because uh, being a guy that loves horror, being a guy that has two movies in development right now uh, that require creature effects, uh, I'm very excited to have today's guest on who is a godfather of creature effects, creature design, um, and uh, film conception stuff, uh, Mr. Aaron Sims. Now, for those of you who don't know who he is, uh, Aaron has been in the business for a long time now. I mean, he's worked with uh, some of the greats in the makeup effects world. He worked uh, for Rick Baker, which is amazing, and he also worked for Stan Winston. So who is Stan Winston? Uh, Where are you living? (laughs) You not know. Movies like Terminator, uh, Jurassic Park. uh, The list goes on and on with Stan. And Rick Baker comes from that world of like American Werewolf in London. Um, So this guy, Aaron, was working at the heyday of makeup and creature effects and puppet work. Um, And that's like in the 80s, 90s. And those films are the films that have influenced me. Those films are the films that still scare me. Uh, And a lot of those techniques I'm trying to bring back practically with the movies that I'm putting together. So it's very exciting for me uh, to be able to sit down and talk with Aaron, um, not just as a fan of his work, but also as a young director who is looking to make that next step. And we get to talk and sort of go into detail. And I get to ask these questions that we all want to know, like, how do you start a relationship with a creature company? And how do you start a relationship with uh, people who are going to help you uh, do the concept work for your film? This stuff is fascinating to me. And then I want to get into some of the harder questions that I have. Uh, One of the most important is like, when is it in your mind, when is it time to do practical effects and when is it time to do CGI and how what are the decisions that we make for that and I've got some ideas based upon my experience why I would choose one or the other but uh, I'm just fascinated to see if what I think is actually in practice (laughs) and I think that's what I'm trying to do with the show in general is like give you guys that same sort of access that I'm having and Today's episode's great because you guys are gonna get those answers when I get those answers. Um, So I'm not passing this along to you, we're gonna learn it together, which is really cool. Um, And uh, Aaron is awesome, he has an amazing company. Um, He talks about the progression that uh, his career has taken from being a makeup and creature effects guy um, to being there when Jurassic Park came out and examining the change that was happening in the industry and being one of the few who wasn't afraid of it and embraced that and understood that his, you know, at the time, you know, let's say it was like 12, 15 years worth of experience could be used in a whole new world with technology. Um, And because of that, he's been incredibly successful in building his own company, uh, the Aaron Sims Creative Group. Uh, And these guys uh, do some of the coolest CG work, some of the best um, creature concept work that's out there. And uh, if you are just curious about some of the movies that he's worked on, I won't list them all because I know he's going to talk about them, but there's a few really good nuggets in here. Uh, How many of you have seen Evil Dead 2? How many of you have seen Men in Black? Uh... Gremlins 2 which is a favorite of mine which is a cheesy favorite of mine love that movie Um, okay and maybe you're sitting here going look dude I wasn't born in the 1980s so can you please be more current okay how about Stranger Things Hmm? how about that scene at the end of the first season of Stranger Things when she finally confronts the creature and it comes through the wall at the I think it was at a school that's all those guys also they did Ready Player One they did design stuff for the movie Rampage um, and he helped design um, the lead in the Planet of the Apes stuff which is super awesome And he's a huge nerd for Planet of the Apes and it's really cool to hear how uh, being a fanboy of the movies that came out in the 70s he was able to bring that current and it was a big moment in his career where he was able to help design the main character for the Planet of the Apes series and the progression of that character so this is a really fun episode Um, and I'm very excited to have him on the show, and it's a very inspiring episode for you guys too because he really sort of talks about confronting change and embracing change and understanding how he can make his skills work with the changes that happen so frequently and so rapidly in our industry. Um, So, great episode. Very excited about it. Uh, So, let's just get into it right? Fuck it, right? So here's the deal. Find some dark place, wherever you are, close the shades, get into a spot that's scary, okay? Then I want you to shut off all the lights, throw on your noise-canceling headphones, sit back, try to relax, and enjoy the new episode of In Love With The Process. Hey, Aaron, thanks for uh, being on the show, man.
0: Hey, Mike, it's great to talk to you. It's great. uh, Enjoy. um, uh, I'm sure we'll have a lot of fun talking about uh, the industry. Um, So, um.
1: yeah, well, I mean, it's such a cool thing that you uh, agreed to be on the show, because this is a topic that I really haven't uh, talked about yet, which is VFX, special effects. Uh, And this is something that I have a lot of interest in because I've got a few projects and development right now that are going to require this stuff so i'd love to hit you up with some some questions that i have as a as a young director coming at you um, but i'd also love to sort of dig into the nerdy really cool world that is creature design and special effects yeah
0: absolutely let's let's do it
1: all right man so let's just do a bit of history first um how did you get started how'd you get into the business
0: well i'm uh I was originally from uh, Texas, I grew up in Texas and knew that uh, I wanted to be in the entertainment business in some fashion, I was a big fan of sci-fi, horror and fantasy, uh, so <laughs> I made my my way out right out of high school, made it to California, and uh, it wasn't long, I worked at Tower Records for a little bit doing um, just displays uh, when Tower Records existed, it's, uh, it's kind of sad that the record stores are all gone, but... Um, but uh was in West Covina, and, and I got a call from a high school friend that we used to just hang out with and uh, design monsters. We were growing up and fantasize about working in the film industry. And he was working on this movie called uh, – well, he was just finishing up uh, Elm Street 2. Uh, <laughs> cool. And uh, he was working at a makeup effects house uh, for a guy named Mark Showstrom in Pasadena and uh, called me up and said, hey, you know, we used, to, we used to draw all these monsters. We were growing up. It's like in high school uh, – would you be interested in uh, working on this n- new project? It's an H.B. Love, uh, Lovecraft project called uh, From Beyond. And uh, I said, absolutely. Um, cool. So I basically came in, interviewed, uh, showed my portfolio, which is just a bunch of monsters and paintings I used to do, uh, to Mark trim and he said, oh, this is great. You'd, be, you'd fit in perfectly. Um, and uh, this is, again, this is makeup effects uh, in the 80s, and it was pretty pretty much like the, the, the height of... Uh, The makeup effects industry uh, 80s and early 90s so i kind of got into it uh at the right time um
1: oh oh hell yeah dude with that with like with uh the thing and and all that stuff that was coming out for practical effects that was like an amazing time oh yeah
0: yeah yeah it was it was uh um, and very exciting for me because again, like it was a dream come true. But I was also, when I moved to California, I kept thinking, well, I'm an ill. I can, I can design, I can illustrate. Maybe I can do movie posters or book covers, you know, or something. But to work in the film industry, we seem like kind of a pipe dream. Um, even though I, you know, kind of my intention when I moved out was to kind of somehow get into it. Um, but you know, it's 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 challenging. It's a challenging thing to um, imagine. But it is kind of one of those things that they say, you know, it's uh, it's who you know. It wasn't like, you know, uh, my friend was uh, a bigwig, but he was in the industry, um, and he was, you know, uh, opened an opportunity for me to meet my, uh, his boss, and uh, so I basically started on this project, it was called From Beyond, and just designing some of the monsters and weird H.B. Uh, Lovecraft uh, kind of creatures, um, which was a blast, and uh, and then Mark asked me, he goes, hey, do you sculpt? And I said, um, "I you know, I actually have dabbled with sculpting but i i wouldn't feel comfortable sculpting one of these creatures for a movie because you know i haven't done enough of it and goes ah give it a shot so uh i ended up doing it and uh and realized wow this you know this is actually kind of fun uh (laughs) and uh it's a horror movie so it's like it, it was forgiving in certain ways it's gonna be lit really dark so you know my bad sculpting at that time probably like was not you know uh as as uh as horrible as uh, I I would have been super, I mean, I was super critical. I always am about my work. So um, just to be jumping in it, not like having any, like, uh, (laughs) testing the waters first. It was just like, here, this design you did, sculpt it. Uh, So ended up doing that, which was a lot of fun. And then he goes, hey, do you know how to mold? I go, oh, molding, no, tell me what that is. And then it was basically, you know, it's where where you, you know, molding is just taking, uh, like, plaster and, uh, and putting it over your sculpture and making it uh, two-sided so you can actually open it up and then pour something into it as, into a positive. So I, he taught me uh, all the process of uh, mold making, uh, you know, uh, uh, making a positive out of foam latex or latex. and um, It was just a blast. So I realized, wow, I am, I'm having the best time ever, and I'm making no money at all.
1: well that's that's how it works right? i mean it's it seems like you know most of the time you're trading that you're either trading cash for for uh, a job that you enjoy and then there's the lucky few that that hit you know and then you get paid for man that's
0: yeah
1: uh, super cool You know what? You know what's so funny? It's funny that you talked about Tower Records because when I was a kid, one of my first jobs was working for Strawberries here. I'm on the East Coast, which was like Tower Records competition. And I also was building end caps and stuff like that. So that's hysterical
0: that you did the same thing. Yeah, I actually enjoyed it. It was, uh, you know, I knew it was just like, you know, a a part of my life that was going to be very short, uh, hopefully, and not be stuck there making a career out of it. Um, yeah. <laughs> but you know, it was fun while it lasted and had a lot of, you know, met a lot of, uh, fun people that became, we all became roommates, uh, you know, lived in West Covina. And then I uh, slowly, mer- you know, made my way out into Hollywood. Um, but yeah, it was, uh, that was kind of the start. So from beyond, uh, was kind of my introduction to makeup effects and the film industry and, uh, and I had a blast and Mark Showstrom, the guy that was running the show basically said, Hey, we're, I think we're going to about to work on this, uh, um, other movie called Evil Dead 2. And, yeah, no and uh I go I go, oh, yeah, I think I remember seeing like a, the I guess the college uh, film version of that. That um so so we ended up starting on that, working on that for uh uh yeah a couple of it was almost immediately went right into it from from beyond. So worked on that and designed a lot of, like the um uh Bruce Campbell's like uh, chainsaw arm and all that fun stuff.
1: Oh Cool, man. Very yeah, cool.
0: and his like severed hand that runs around and he f- he fights <laughs> things like that. And some of the demons designed some of that stuff and did some storyboards on it. And and from there, it kind of just you know that was the beginning of like you know people sp- started coming around. I started doing interviews and eventually went to Rick Baker's, uh, which was really well known for American Werewolf in London and um, mm-hmm. and uh, Greystoke and uh, Gorillas in the Mist. You know all these uh, you know incredible. Um, makeup effects and uh, animatronic, uh, you know, films that he was he was doing the, the work with. And uh, so I was a huge fan because I was a huge fan of like a, when I was a kid of, um, uh, you know, there was a few films that really inspired me. One was, you know, The Thing. I love John Carpenter's The Thing. That's one of my favorites. Uh, of course. Yeah. And American Werewolf, uh, I love that movie because it, it was like it took horror in a different way and had... And uh, John Landis did a great job of making it into a comedy, um, but still having some terrifying moments. And so it was... a r-
1: Oh, man, that, that transformation scene alone is amazing. That still holds up oh, to Oh, yeah.
0: Me, you know, really? Yeah, so I was a big, big fan of Rick's. And then beyond that was Star Wars and, uh, and Planet of the Apes was a big influence of mine when I was a kid, too. So those are all the things that like really inspired me. Uh, so being able to work with uh, Rick Baker that did American War for London was like a dream come true. And uh, he was working on this, uh, um, the uh, Gremlins 2 and uh, The New Batch, which, <laughs> and uh, it was just an enormous movie. I mean, this is the time and in the industry when, I mean, right now they, they spent a ton of money on visual effects, but this is when they spent a ton of money on makeup effects uh, and, and puppets. Yeah. And so, um, you know, that was, that was a blast. Worked on that for two years, uh, but felt like I was working on kind of a, a, a like a, a factory in some ways because we were building. I had a. I was basically designing and painting a lot of the gremlins and, uh, and so there was like <laughs> I think hundreds, hundreds I did and worked on Gizmo, uh, uh, and did the eyes for Gizmo and like helped with the puppets on that. So it was a lot of fun. It was a learning experience, but um, but there wasn't that many movies that that put that much money and effort. Uh, you know, that was two years of like just a pre-production. You know which, yeah. you know, you, you just wow. don't have that anymore. Um, but but that was yeah, my first introduction with uh, Rick Baker. Uh, you know, I can go on with all this stuff, but I don't want to bore everybody with these uh, my entire background. So, <laughs> so
1: <laughs> I don't think it's that boring, brother. You've worked on some really, really, like, influential films for this generation at least. You know, I know that Gremlins and, and uh, Dante, all his stuff is completely inspiring to the stuff I do. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Bruce Campbell and, uh, uh, Sam Raimi stuff, obviously. And we're seeing, and we can get real nerdy about this, but we're seeing a resurgence of filmmakers like myself that really love practical effects, really love, uh, getting stuff in camera, on camera, um, and uh it's really cool that you've we one of the dudes working on all that stuff that really inspire us, so none of that
0: is boring. okay well good yeah no I, I I enjoy uh you know it's 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 hard not to enjoy talking about yourself but <laughs> but especially if you've if you've had fun um and so yeah, the makeup effects is uh was just you know it was it was great to be a part of that in the heydays you know we're working with Rick Baker for several years, worked on nutty professor uh so designed a lot of the characters for that, and did the grandma makeup. And uh worked on uh Men in Black. Uh and um that was you know that was a blast. It was probably one of my favorite experiences at Rick's just because I'm I'm such a sci-fi uh, geek. And so certain you know, that particular show um, you know, was very creative as as a designer because then I had a, the opportunity to design a lot of the aliens. And uh and this yeah. is an interesting story. So uh on Men in Black, we were we used to do these things, and it's it's very rare you do it anymore because of digital but um but these things called maquettes and so there was we would design a lot of stuff on paper, like sketching and stuff like that, but sometimes we'd just go right into clay and start designing an alien um and mm. so it would be almost like a, and a maquette is basically a miniature version of uh, uh of a, a full size um, uh, design uh, in clay mm-hmm. and so uh, we were doing um, a bunch of different characters, the some of the main characters that way and variations onto that. Uh, and Barry Sonnefeld, the director, which, you know, he's well, he was well-known before that from uh, being uh, the Coen Brothers DP, uh, you know, on uh, Raising Raising oh, yeah. Arizona. And before that was like a, a blood... Uh, oh, God, what was the movie? Uh, Did he do Blood Simple? Yeah, but, Did he also yeah, do Miller's yeah, Crossing? Yeah, Miller's Crossing, no. I think, and Blood Simple. Uh, uh, yeah. So just, just beautiful work. So... This is like one of, I think it was my, he he did something before, I think it was Get Shorty before that, but uh, as a director, but then this is like his first big, you know, sci-fi. Um, and so he comes in, uh, when we have all these maquettes and, and uh, has you know, his producers around him, we're at Rick Baker's, we have them all lined up, like, uh, in the main area, uh, and um, he starts walking around looking at the aliens, and we had him... Uh, you know, kind of in different areas. Like here's the main characters that's in the script. Here's some background characters. Here's, you know, some other, you know, ideas. Uh, so he was able to walk around and understand it. we were able to actually walk him through it. Uh, and when he got to, you know, the back, some of the background characters, he looked at the ones, uh, that were these tall worm, worm guy things. And, uh, and it's basically the worm guys that uh, that are in the, the movie. But when he, when he looked yeah. at him, he was like, and, you know, they're only like, the maquette was only 12 feet uh, or 12 inches, you know, or maybe it was almost two feet uh, total. And um, and he was like, oh, wow, what is this? This is kind of cool and unique. And so I explained it. I said, you know, I see these characters being like nine feet tall. And, uh, <laughs> and, uh, and I had like the whole idea. I kind of worked out in my head what they do. And he goes, no, no, no. They're exactly this height. I think they're going to be – we have to write something in there. Maybe you can help with it. So so we worked out this whole, like, scene, and I helped design it and stuff like that for the kitchen scene where he's, they're drinking coffee and Tommy Lee Jones comes in. And, um, But it was a lot of fun because it was a background character that, you know, was uh, – that uh, had no – it was just going to be kind of, you know, lost in the mix, and now it's, you know, it's still – it's in all of them. Even we worked on the latest one, the the, the British uh, Men in Black, and they're in that movie too. So they, they've – So they stand the you know test of time. I guess they were the characters that still seem to be in every movie, um, which is strange. That's cool. So yeah, that's yeah. And going on, going on set, you know, and and uh, you know, puppeteering, and uh, you know, I was actually doing actually on that one, I was um, blowing smoke. I was um, through because they were all puppets, rod puppets, and uh, so they were up against like the the kitchen kitchenette area. And they had the rods coming out of the back, and so we were puppeteering the, the them and then I was I guess in charge of the ones that were smoking cigarettes to to blow smoke coming out of them. so we made this <laughs> tube and and I don't know why I think it was a cigar. Someone gave me a cigar, and I had never smoked a cigar before, but um and it was like puffing you know smoke through that. And it was horrible. It was just, <laughs> I was choking because yeah. I'm trying to breathe, you know, not like inhale it that much, but enough I can actually blow it out. So I'm inhaling it. But it's also, there's, you're going through a small tube, which is you're getting lightheaded because you're trying to push smoke <laughs> that's already like filled your lungs and you got to like pl- push it out like a warm guy's lungs. You know, <laughs> so, so
1: and your first experience with a cigar—that must have been—you must have got. Oh my sick God! Yeah, it was that,
0: horrible. Man. I mean, it was fun uh, for about you know two minutes, and then all of a sudden it's like, okay, this is horrible. Someone else do this. Um, but yeah, that was a lot of fun. So being on set—that's uh, the one thing you know that's changed uh, quite a bit. You know, being there's uh, there has been this uh, reassurance of or uh, you know kind of a a, a new. Uh, era I guess of bringing makeup effects back which is great a lot of directors really want the more physical stuff which I think is is wonderful yeah um totally. but but yeah I think so so moving on so I worked there for a bit the last film was uh uh at Rick's it was over 12 years I was there and uh was gremlins two or no not gremlins, I'm sorry uh uh the Grinch that stole Christmas uh <laughs> okay and uh you know it was. Uh, that was a lot of fun. Then I got. Then Rick wanted to take a little break. He had been doing it for a while, and he just kind of t- wanted to take a break. And he, he basically mentioned it to what, the entire team. There, um, he was just going to take like a month off or something like that, or or he didn't know how long. He didn't really even say. But then I got a call from Stan Winston, which was really well known for uh, Jurassic Park, Terminator, Predator, Predator. Oh, yeah. You know, and he was the. the uh, I guess in some ways, he was Rick's competition. Uh, but he his whole thing was he did more of the bigger animatronic stuff, like the dinosaurs in Jurassic Park. So his stuff was a little different. Um, but I got a call and said, hey, I hear that Rick's uh, letting you go, and I had never met him before. Uh, and he says, I'd like to interview you. You have a lot of friends over here that that love to see you uh, here at this office. So I ended up um, interviewing, And but I told him at that, t- that point, I had already made, and this is something that I kind of glazed over, so right around Jurassic Park uh, in the 90s, uh, um, you know, there was a big breakthrough of visual effects. ILM created this incredible uh, these incredible dinosaurs that that we had never seen before, um, uh, in that in that way. It was stop. Mo- it was yeah. usually stop motion before that, or um, and you know, luckily they had Phil Tippett, which was a stop motion uh, uh, genius over at ILM that helped choreograph all the uh, movement for the T Rex and the, all the uh, and the Raptors, and which I think really kind of helped you know bring them to life. Um, especially, you know, the early days when, you, you know, there was uh, CG was just, you know, this is one of the first times that we had ever seen anything like this. So, And what, what it did for me is it inspired me to evolve my work into a new way. I was, ex- I was one of the very few of my the colleagues that were working at Rick Baker's. We all went to go see Jurassic Park, and, and I was just blown away. Everybody was blown away, but almost everybody was afraid. It was like there was a fear in the room, like afterwards. They go, wow, our our jobs are gone. And I go, and, oh, and I remember yeah. going, t- telling everybody, go, wait, wait, no, why are they gone? We can do this. We can be a part of this. You know, this could be exciting. We know the things, the knowledge that we know for being, be, you know, building the physical stuff. This is a, this is a, a great opportunity for us. And everybody's like, yeah, but you have to be on a computer. You have to learn the software. I go, I go, that's easy, isn't it? I mean, I, I had no idea. I was just, <laughs> I was just excited. It was like. That feeling of, you know, when I was a kid and I saw Star Wars or something like that, it's like, or, you know, Planet of the Apes or any, or the thing, it's like, wow, I want to get in the fil- film industry and do that. So being, you know, in the, uh, you know, doing makeup effects for, at that point, it was probably about 10, uh, 10 or 11 years, you know, of doing, I don't know, it was almost 12 years by that point. Uh, I was excited, and I started to learn um, on my own. Whatever tutorials were out there, I, I got the software. I got a crack copy of Softimage because I found out that that's what that's what uh, they used to create <laughs> Jurassic Park from a few friends that were in the industry, and uh, and started learning it. And uh, realized, wow, this is this is difficult, but it's not as bad as uh, you know. I can get my head around it. Um, and yeah. so I started to yeah. slowly put together a reel. And so by the time, so, you know, flash forward to like when I got a call from Stan Winston, this is probably about two years later, two or three years, it was around 2000. So uh, I got a call and and uh, and I had an interview and he wanted to hire me. And I said, well, here's the thing. I, I'm, I love makeup effects, but I really want to focus on visual effects right now. There's something I feel is very important uh, for me as an artist that I can actually create something um, in this new way. And I actually, and part of what I've done and what I've, and I still do today, um, is try to figure out, you know, look at the future. What does the future hold for it as far as like what I want to do and, and don't get stuck in my ways or don't get stuck in the past, but move forward. Mm -hmm. So when I saw uh, CG, I, I saw it as an opportunity to grow, uh, and not, not as an opportunity or, or not as, my job was going to go away, but how can I enhance my job?
1: So right, I, I looked right. at it
0: that way, and I think that I was one of the very few which um, I was so surprised because there were so many incredibly talented artists that I still try to push towards visual effects, or at least using some of the tools because, like ZBrush and some of these other ones we'll talk about later. But um, which um, and they're very reluctant. It's it's a and it's an interesting thing about human nature. I think um, some people really have a uh, a sense of of uh i guess um uh what is it what i'm trying to say of, uh, it's, it's basically it's like there's what you've learned is what you know and you and you you feel you're stronger if you just keep going down that path of it opposed to and an something that's changed now you have to adapt but the thing is if, if how i see change all the time is is that you've learned so much in the past of you know, especially for makeup effects for myself is like the physics. I understood like sculpting and understood all these things that that uh, now if I had a digital tool, I could create something that I could never create in the real world now because of either weight, uh, everything else that because of the size of it um, or what I wanted to do. Um, but now I have the knowledge to make that come to life.
1: Oh, yeah, and it's got to be those subtle little things that make it interesting. It's the same thing with me, man, because when I got started as a filmmaker, I had to, as a young filmmaker, I had to basically teach myself how to shoot my own stuff, and I ended up uh, becoming a cinematographer uh, as a side product to that, and that's kind of how I got started was uh, shooting other people's movies and music videos and all that kind of mm-hmm. shit, but I, I made a decision early on because uh, this was around 2000, around that time period when you had – Film and then digital was this weird little thing that was starting. And most cinematographers at that time period were like, I'm not going to shoot digital. Digital is video. Digital is not the same. Yeah. Digital isn't what you want. And you had to sort of fight that notion that unless I did film, I'm not a professional. Like I'm not, I'm, I don't fit in with all the rest of them. So it was like this hurdle that I had to get through. And I decided to just embrace digital and jump on it and play with it and sort of fight with this thing. Uh, as it was being developed and thankfully I did because everything has sort of shifted that way and the future shifted that way but with something like what you're saying it's interesting because you're able to come at it from a completely different perspective as opposed to someone that just sort of sits down and goes okay so this is a computer I'm going to learn the program for the computer I'm going to learn the steps for the computer and then I'm going to learn to model on a computer you're actually coming from it from like a real world perspective where it's like I know how to model I know how to design creatures I know how creatures should work in real life let me just see if I can make it work with this new tool, which I think is pretty powerful. It's a powerful way to approach it, right?
0: Yeah, and I think it's that's part of I think anything I go go about. Like, um, there's a lot of new software. Like right now, you know, jumping even ahead, right now, is VR. VR is really big, and and game engines are are uh, you know like Unreal or um, is a is a great yeah. and we actually use it here. But it's one of those that I've gotten inspired. I'm learning it myself because I realize what I can do. I can create my own my own time my own movie and render it almost real time um and that's right. exciting so i think that um anytime i approach anything and, um, and i know everybody's different but it's i i have tried to approach it as as uh not like a task that i have to learn but as a, a tool that's going to help me get my stuff my my art uh completed you know yeah Smart. i think it's and i think yeah. that that's that's how I've always looked at it, and that's why I don't get intimidated by any of it. Even if it looks really intimidating, you open it up and you go, "Holy crap, what is all this?" You know, <laughs> exactly, just, exactly. Yeah, but it's it's at
1: the at the end of the day, they're just tools, though. At the end of the day, it's a different type of paintbrush, and sure, you have to. There's a bit more learning that's involved with it. But,
0: yeah, I mean, and, and, it's just a yeah, tool. it is. It is a tool, and there's and there's a a lot of stuff I miss from uh, you know the practical days that. Uh, not necessarily the chemicals, because there was a lot of chemicals and i i keep I keep waiting for the day that my doctor's gonna say, "Okay, you have some weird kind of parasite that that uh, was created from these chemicals growing inside your belly um, but luckily that hasn't happened yet, but there was things we were using like uh, petroleum products uh to you know paint with uh um like benzenes and naphtha and then all tents, which is you know you mix that with uh with um uh, uh god uh." Uh, rubber cement and a bunch of other stuff and it's all this stuff is just like and you breathe it while you're painting even though we had spray booths and had masks i usually like after like hours of, uh, of being in a spray booth and also having a mask on i would have to take that off because i was just one i was getting sore from the mask on my face and the other is just the sound of the humming for hours so i oh. turn it off and then it's like oh, i think yeah. oh wait i've been painting for like about six hours with no uh in this uh contained area that with nothing on it's like But I was also like, you know, 20s and, you know, like I was younger. So it was like I wasn't really thinking about health that much for some reason. It was just about getting it done. Now that I'm, you know, I'm in my 50s now, it's like I I look at life and go, shit, I'm not going to do that because it's too much of a risk. (laughs)
1: Yeah. <laughs> oh, dude! I had my days back when I was doing dark room stuff, and you're in the dark room for hours, and you're like, oh, I can't remember my last name. Yeah, <laughs> it's just all that chemical fume stuff kills you, and you don't realize it. Oh my god!
0: And we we were doing, which was really innovative in, in makeup effects. Like, you know, there's other, you know, what I always wanted was the next thing. So, like, that's why I gravitated towards digital and everything else, and and now uh, VR and all the other tools. But way back when, it's like you know, uh, we we're just all the creatures in were made of like foam latex uh or polyfoam. Uh and uh you know a lot of puppets were polyfoam, which is basically the same thing that your couches, uh the foam in your couch. Um yeah. uh which also has like when you when you put two chemicals together that make that it, it creates nit, uh what is it? Uh it's a toxin. I forget what it is. I should know this. It's been too long but uh, <laughs> but it's deadly either way. So, um, uh, but, uh, but then silicone came along and we were able to create, uh, you know, some really th- uh, more skin-like uh, materials. And so that, that also had its own problems. One is weight, you know, cause it, it, the hev- it's, it's heavier, but, but there was so many times I had to learn when I was younger, like how to make foam latex, which was very opaque, look translucent like skin. And, uh, so I learned techniques, uh, of um, how to paint in layers, you know, to create like the the different dermal layers that we have in our skin, you know, like, so I, I broke it down and that was also fun. That's exciting. And you become almost like a scientist in a lot of ways, try to, try to visualize how skin looks on something opaque to make it translucent. Uh,
1: ah, it's so cool, man. All these things are so rad. And I love, this is what I love about this industry is I love the fact that you get so very nerdy about those details and those specifics. And those things are so integral to a great looking creature or to, to really cool looking effects on screen. Um, And being a director, being someone that is reliant on that stuff, I can't learn all those tricks. So I love, I love, love hearing about all these things that you get nerdy about because I, I just feel like everybody, whenever you make a movie, all these things come to the table. Like everybody brings all this experience to make scenes amazing. Oh, yeah, it's,
0: it's so cool. It is, and it's great when, you know, you're working with people that, you know, love it and appreciate it. You know, this industry, like every industry, you always, I'm sure you've experienced it too, but you always meet people occasionally that that are unhappy with what they're doing. Oh. And it's like, then why oh, yeah. are you doing this? There's so many other opportunities and jobs out there. It's like, why be in an industry or do so, anything in life uh, as a career if you if you have a choice? You know, some people may not, but it's like, you know, the film industry is like, you know, to, to be in that is like, uh, it's a lot of work just to get in. So to be in it and be unhappy, it's like, well, you made a, a bad, a bad decision, I guess.
1: <laughs> I, do, I, see, I say that to a lot of people, man. Cause it's at the end of the day, it's all about whenever I talk to somebody, it's like, why are you doing it? Are you doing this because you, you have this need to tell stories or you have this curiosity or you have this, this, uh, obsession with working and collaborating with people. If that's why you're doing it, power to you it's good it's probably a good path but if you're doing this to prove something if you're doing this because you know your dad didn't pay attention to you like if you're trying to get to the end mm-hmm. goal where you're standing on stage and you cross your arms and go look what i did then you're fucked because oh, yeah. there's there's so much there's so much time in between that moment and the creation of it and then that standing on stage with your arms crossed maybe lasts. I don't know, a couple of days, like a week, and then you're thrown back into this long, long process of collaboration and research, development, and and all that stuff. So, dude, what you can find them immediately. You can tell when you're working with someone immediately what their what their reasoning is, whether or not they say it to you. And I try to weed those people out as soon as
0: possible. Oh, me too. Yeah, it's like you know, life is short, and it's like you want to be surrounded by people that. You know, you're you're the like-mind, like mind like like minded people that have the same interest and we feed off each other and uh and even oh, yeah. my company as we grow it's like that's something that's a, a... personality has to do more than uh talent. That that actually super, supersedes talent in a weird way. I know it's an odd thing to, to say from a design of Visual Effects House, but I've worked in the past at different companies uh where I didn't have a choice and um and uh employees were you know, sometimes not, uh, they were disruptive and it becomes viral, viral, you know, it's like,
1: Oh God. Yeah. It spreads like crazy. Yeah. And if if like a bad attitude in a working environment like that or a bad attitude on set just starts to
0: spread. Oh yeah. And if you, and if, if you can just, avoid it, yeah, oh. it's, it's, it's best. So now that I've, I have my own company, I kind of uh, make my own rules when it comes to, you know, and, and actually it's funny about you know, like you were saying too, it's like you, right when you meet somebody, um, first impressions are usually, you know, fairly accurate. People, unless yeah. someone's a really good actor or a good liar, you know, <laughs> you know then you, you can tell. It just it's amazing. Like as as humans, we we've, you know, it's uh, the, the how much we've evolved in in ways that we can read each other, like you know, like a book, you know, without e- without it's even knowing exactly. anybody. It's like you just we just know it's everything in the eyes, the body language, the the way someone speaks, you know, everything. It's just it you okay. Know, Comes across to to you, you know that person you know you may not know every detail about, well, them, but you know that they're either someone that you're going to get along with or you're not.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, it's for sure. And you know what? For people like you and I, it's our job to study those things because we're putting those things on screen. So I feel even more hyper focused.
0: Oh, I'm sure. Yeah, <laughs> you know, as a like, director, yeah, you're working with so many people. Oh, I mean,
1: oh well. Yeah. Even as a cre- as a creature yeah. designer, it's the same thing. You're 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 replicating. That emotion, you're replicating the, the, the those emotional feeds that you're giving to an audience, so that they could sit there and look at what would be uh, a prosthetic creature or whatever it is, and and believe that it's alive. Look at Gizmo and go, oh my god, I love that
0: fucking. Yeah, thing. You, know? you know the sad thing is uh, is because uh, a lot of these movies and even the ones I've worked on in the past, they they. Um, there were such great, great memories. And even the ones I really loved, um, I'll rewatch them again. And it's like, Oh geez, I shouldn't have done that. Cause now I'm, they don't have the same, I mean, they didn't hold up, you know, unfortunately some do actually like the thing to me still holds up. I watched the thing. Oh yeah. Uh, the oh, only yeah. part that, you know, and, uh, nothing against the person that did the work on the thing, but the, uh, but just the, uh, this, even though I love stop motion, um, but the stop motion creature at the end, I just felt like wasn't, was the only thing that doesn't hold up now. You know, because yes. uh, everything yes. else, all the the God. physical effects that make you know uh, makeup and uh, you know all that stuff was just like I mean, a lot of it was a bunch of goo and stuff, and you know, it was just a bunch. But it's so yeah, f- but-
1: it's so funny how it still holds up, even though it's like weirdly colored goo and like greens and like vibrant colors and stuff mm-hmm. like that. But to- tonally, like the tone that he set up with that movie, and then introducing those effects and introducing that stuff with the right tone really like hold like really pulls you in. I get lost in that in that movie every time I watch yeah, it. Yeah, me
0: too. I, I don't even know how many times I've seen that, but it's like it's such a perfect movie for uh a character it's a it's a great character movie. I mean, you you know, every character's unique, but they're also very human, you know. And and the yeah. fact that you're uh stuck with any of these a uh, person that you don't even know if you can trust or not and don't know if they're the thing. It's like it's it's such a terrifying idea. You know, and there's nowhere you can go you can go. It's like it was um, uh, such a, uh, for me, almost a perfect movie, but,
1: uh. Oh, for sure. For sure, yeah. dude. Absolutely. It's a huge inspiration. I'll have to send you my, sh- my, my short that got me the, the deal. Cause it's hugely inspired by that Oh, movie. I love that. That movie. Oh dude, that movie. It, it's Bible for me. I think there are like f- probably five movies. It's like that, the shining, mm-hmm. Oh yeah, you know, yeah, There's a couple other ones. What are your, what are your, let's, let's get back into you though. Like what, cause you create monsters, right? So that's, that's one of your things. So what monsters inspired you or what monsters inspire you the most from your past or present? Like, what do you, what do you like?
0: Well, from my past, it would be, you know, uh, the, uh, uh I mean, obviously alien is, is something that just is, it stands out, you know, it's, it's, yeah. it's one, it's that, uh, I think it's, it, it's kind of unfortunate because I loved I loved it in its first original um, form when when it was more mysterious than what it is you know that it's become like you know how many alien movies I mean they've kind of stopped them but now it's like you, <laughs> yeah. they lost the the I mean I love James Cameron's Aliens but the first Alien to me was just like the perfect monster movie just because it was classic it's perfect. classic perfect and it, it, yeah it's it it was one of those that uh, you. It was so bizarre how the design of it worked within the the uh, the architecture of the ship too, so that it could hide itself so well, and it was done so well that it wasn't. It didn't feel like it was forced. It felt very very natural. Um, and uh, oh
1: yeah, and, and one thing a lot of people overlook too is that the fucking android stuff in that movie is terrifying. Oh yeah, like the, like the whole reveal that he's an android and the, and the white blood choice and all yeah. of
0: that.
1: It was perfect. Yeah. Perfect. yeah
0: so that's that's one i mean the thing obviously but the thing is like um for me is a you know there's not a, a creature that you can just uh, identify and go oh that's the thing about the, th- the thing is it's it's a constant moving creature that uh every cell's like an organism but um which is the beauty of it but um that is as a film but not as a creature design it's it's um because there's really not one that you can stand out but like uh play of the apes was another one i just i was blown away by that you know just because when i uh, the Charlton Heston version when I was younger, it was like, yes. Uh, yes, yes. And, and what I feel very fortunate about and this is just moving ahead is that I was able to work on the last three that, you know, with, uh, Weta, you know, to they'd be a part of that so and design cool. and design yeah. Caesar, um, and all the apes you know, working closely, but we started, uh, uh, way before even Weta was involved. We were called by Fox to, um, help design Caesar, the main, uh, ape. And it was being, uh, written at the time and we were working closely with the writer and uh, Scott Frank uh, and what uh, was it uh, from there it was just kind of expanded we ended up you know designing um, uh, I think it was almost uh, a thousand different looks for Caesar and it was so so bizarre because we you know, the, kind of the story was like an origin story which I always thought was interesting because they always the alien or um, Planet of the Apes was always uh, kind of a loop a uh, time loop you know, so so there was yeah. really never a start. You know, like and based on the original story, it was always just a loop. Um, and so it was interesting to change that and do it in a way that you know had a lot to do with you know things that are that affect us, Alzheimer's, you know, all that stuff, a disease, you know, diseases that we are trying to mm-hmm. cure, but we use animals to like test it out on, and and how it just affects us in a different way than them, and wipes us out, and that they were still I- able to intertwine the original story. Uh, of some of that stuff into this story, which was I thought brilliant, um, but keep it, but also keep yeah. it very human, in in the perspective of an ape, which I thought was just it's brilliant and very difficult to do. But so for me, it was like uh, it was you know such a thrill when I even read the first script. I was like, wow, this is going to be awesome. Uh, and but it was about like you know this kind of like evolved, like Caesar was going to be a baby of one that was uh, of the mother that was injected by this, so he could be more advanced. Um, and so that that created like a design process that that was in a lot of ways very terrifying looking because we went down every path of what kind of a human mix or evolved ape could we go, <laughs> and a lot of it was like you know starting off with like just the features making it more human or giving it more cartilage like we have on our nose, uh, um, and uh, that kind of stuff just did not work. It just looked like a weird Neanderthal mixed with something just terrifying in your nightmares. Um, as much as I like it for something else, it didn't work for Planet of the Apes. But then we finally found something What was so interesting after uh, hundreds of designs. Then there was, finally found the the, the face that worked. And, and how it worked out was finally found the, the features of an ape uh, chimpanzee that was almost the perfect, like, you know, uh, coloring that we could see a lot of the expressions, but also just the shape of it. But then the main thing with it was keeping everything very much a chimpanzee, Except for the eyes, making putting putting them more into the human aspect of the eyes, and then moving the muzzle up where the mouth is to where our mouth is, because on chimpanzees their their muzzles are really low, and so so oh. if we moved it up right where ours is, but everything else, the nose is very much a chimpanzee, the, even the head shape and the ears and everything else, uh, even the bone structure. It's just those two things is what created Caesar, and uh, cool. yeah, but. Yeah, so it was it was fun. It was and again it was like it was one of those like, you know, there's so many movies that I wish I could work on because I was such fans of, and I got I got to work on one that I was a fan of. So, uh, and also be <laughs> through the entire process of all th- all trilogies and he evolved uh, Caesar through each one. You know, helped with the war pain in the second one and how older how much older he was in the the last one, and then the new car- and then oh, the new dude. the new characters <laughs> like Bad Eight come up with that one. You know, it was all this fun stuff.
1: Uh, and it's beautiful. It's beautiful work. Like, those movies are gorgeous. Like, absolutely. Yeah, amazing.
0: I mean, what Weta what a really, you know, brought him to life and made, you know, and obviously the actors and everybody involved. Um, but, yeah, being a, a, just a part of the design process uh, was just, you know, a kind of a dream come true.
1: All right. I got to do it. We got to take a quick break to show some love to the wonderful people that keep this show going. I'm talking about my long-term sponsors. I love these guys. Uh, they're, they've stuck with me since the beginning and uh, they deserve us to take a moment and listen to the stuff that they're, they're, they're selling because they're selling some really cool shit guys. Um, and do me a favor. Don't just listen to this stuff and don't just skip through it uh, check their stuff out, you know, follow them on Instagram. How about that? We'll just start there today. Do me a favor and follow both of these sponsors on Instagram. That would help me out and that would show them that you guys listen to the show, which is important for us. Okay. So first up, our good buddies over at Puget Systems. So if you're listening to this show and you're thinking about getting into CGI and you're thinking about getting into compositing work, and you're looking at the prices of the machines that you need to buy, and they're just going to break your fucking bank, (laughs) I would highly suggest checking out PCs. PCs can be custom-built specifically to the software you're using. And it's now, like, everybody knows this. Different hardware is needed to optimize different software platforms, especially if you're building a machine for After Effects. Um, And I recently teamed up with Puget Systems and my buddies over at School of Motion, and we created a video that talked about the best way to configure out an After Effects PC if you're building it. But if you're someone that isn't tech savvy, if you're someone that doesn't really want to go through the process of trying to figure out what gear works and what gear doesn't work, and then trying to build the system and, and having some of the gear work and not work, and then trying to find the latest drivers, it's, it's a fun thing to do if you're like I used to be, where you're like, hey, I love to build things and uh, I'm a bit of a gearhead, so I'll build my own PC. Um, but for the rest of the world that's out there and you want to go and buy something that you could open and unpack and start working on, um, I would definitely go check out Puget Systems because they build smoking, awesome, fast uh, PCs that come at you at a fraction of the price of the big competitor that's out there. Um, If you head on over to PugetSystems.com, you can actually shop for a system uh, by selecting the software that you use. And then the guys will suggest a base package, and then you can customize that package. And the thing that's really great about their systems is that they're fully upgradable. So as the shit changes, you know, you subscribe to Adobe, you subscribe to one of these software platforms, and suddenly they do an update, and hey, now you need to get better hardware. You can do those adjustments. You can put third-party hardware in these machines. There's plenty of room for it. Uh, These guys build really great-looking systems, but for them, the focus is building something that works for you. It's a tool that works for you. It's not about buying a shiny circular cube or whatever the hell it is that sits on your desk, and then you have to buy a bunch of dongles and everything else to plug in your third-party stuff. No, custom-built PCs that work for you. You're not a slave to them. Um, I would definitely go check them out, PugetSystems.com. I talk about them on every episode. I edit everything I do on their machines. I own them. So if you've seen 12KM, if you've seen, well, most people haven't seen Who's There Yet because they haven't released it yet, but if you've seen uh, the recent Dale Strong piece, all that stuff is cut on Puget Systems PCs. So, definitely check them out. They're great dudes. Love them to pieces. You're going to love them too. And go follow them on Instagram. Do that today. I think it's at Puget Systems on Instagram. Follow them. Give them a thumbs up. Say, Mike said me. Uh, they love that shit. Okay, next up, awesome dudes over at Rule Boston Camera. If you are an independent filmmaker, if you're a photographer. If you're someone that is basically struggling with keeping up with all the newest trends, every time NAB comes out, then the clients go to NAB or read about stuff and now they want the newest and greatest camera and you bought that red Scarlet or whatever the hell it is that you bought years ago that you still haven't fucking paid off and you're asking, how the hell do I make money in this business? Simple, keep your overhead way down. Don't buy copious amounts of gear. Surprising that I say that during my sponsor reads. Buy stuff that works for you. Buy stuff that you can shoot and you can own and have for years and years to come. One of the best investments I've ever made, and I'm not sponsored by any of these guys, are C-stands. C-stands are pieces of equipment that I bought 15 years ago that I still use on every job I do. So be smart about what you invest in. But now you're going to say, okay, but how do I stay current? How do I get these jobs if everybody wants the latest and greatest gear? Do yourself a favor. Go form a relationship with your local rental company. Um, These places are fantastic resources. And if you're on the East Coast, I highly suggest Rule Boston Camera. Not only do they run training seminars, not only do they have all of the best new gear, like the, the equipment that they use to shoot the movies that we watch on the big screen, you can get your hands on. You can actually go in, be trained on how to use it, rent them. Um, And a lot of people are intimidated. People that haven't gone and worked with a rental house uh, for the first time, I think, are slightly intimidated. Like, how do I do it? Do I need to have production insurance? They make it really easy, very simple to do, and they love, love, love independent filmmakers. So do yourself a favor. If you're on the East Coast, check out Rule Boston Camera. Uh, follow them on Instagram. I think it's at Rule Boston Camera. I think that's what it is. (sighs) But that, yeah, just type that in. You'll get it. Um, But if you're not on the East Coast, there are plenty of other local rental companies. Do yourself a serious favor. Go down, form a relationship with these guys um, because you'll have access to all the latest and greatest gear. Most of these places give fantastic technical support. I know Rule does. Uh, and one of the great things about doing a local place is that when you rent your gear, if it goes down, if it fails, they'll bring you out a replacement right to set. That's important, right? Peace of mind for your producer that you're working for. Peace of mind for your clients if you're your producer that's out there. So I love to be able to promote these dudes because I love them. I've been working with them. I, one of my longest relationships, I've been with them for almost 18 years. Think about that. Rule Boston camera. Um, and, uh, I love the show. I love doing this stuff for you guys. And the only way to make that possible is if you guys continue to support me, support my sponsors. If you want to give a donation to the show, you can go to inlovewiththeprocess.com. There's a $5 donation button there, which immediately goes right into the account that pays for all the shit I need to pay for. Um, but if you're like most filmmakers or photographers out there and you're like, look, Mike, my wallet's really fucking thin right now. That's fine. If you haven't done so already, why don't you go sign up for a 30 day trial at Audible using our name, I think it's audibletrial.com backslash in love with the process. I'll put the link below so you don't have to write that down. Um, Hold on, I got a (sighs) burp, what a pig. Um, So uh, sign up using our name, 30 day free trial, they'll give you a free book, and here's the kicker. Everybody that signs up, we get a little bit of loot. So every time, these guys have a great deal for their sponsors. So if you sign up for it, we get some cash. You get 30 days free. You get to listen to a free book. You're probably going to love it. You're probably going to love the service. If you listen to podcasts, you're going to love the service. Uh, because uh, listening to the books, audio books, is like listening to a podcast. Same thing. Um, and then after those 30 days, if you dig it, stick with it. If you don't, cancel it. Not a big deal. We still get paid either way. So it is the best way to get us money without reaching into your own pocket. So please do that. All right. So I got some new sponsors coming. So I got a bunch of new people lined up. We're expanding a little bit. So the show is going to get a bit bigger. Um, I don't want to jinx it. So I'm not going to talk about who they are yet. But be prepared because I got new sponsors on the way. And that's because you guys show love. Continue to show that love. Continue to post about that you listen to the show. Post brag about buying a new Puget system. All these things are really great. It keeps the show alive, keeps our community alive. Anyway, enough of this shit, not for blabbing. Let's get back to the show. Well, okay, so this is, I love everything that we're talking about. Let me just sort of ro- rope it around here and talk about this design process. And let me talk about it with you from the perspective of a director. Okay, so uh, how does it usually start for you? Do you um, form relationships with directors? Or do you form relationships with producers? Um, like, how do you actually get a script sent to you to actually process I mean, go Yeah,
0: that. you know, it's it's interesting. Most of the time it is a director that, that approaches, uh, but there has been many times that... Um, uh, we get hired, you know, my, my company is not just me. It's, it's a, you know, we have 30, around 35 artists, uh, and it's, it grow it grows every year. Um, we're, we're hoping to actually expand uh, globally. Cause the one thing that we're finding, um, is that we're, when it gets to the visual effects and all that, that we don't have a tax incentive in California, like uh, Canada, right. Canada, UK, right. and some of the other uh, countries. So, um, even New York, I think New York is a stronger, uh, uh, tax, tax exactly. incentive. I've-
1: yeah, I've been hearing that. So, yeah, so those are the yeah. things
0: that we're, we're looking to expand. But, but how we actually get approached a lot of times is that I've been in the industry long enough. I've worked with a lot of directors, producers. Uh, and it is, you know, we're always, uh, anytime we work on something, we're working with, you know, a visual effects supervisor, a production designer, a director, a producer. And we make relationships that way. So we'll end up getting a call from uh, either, even sometimes even the studio. The studio will call us and say, hey, we got this project we're going to, um, we want to develop. We have some development funds and we want, you know, some designs because we don't know exactly if it's going to be, you know, uh, what these creatures or these characters are going to look like. We need to know so we can actually be a little stronger on our budgeting through the process and pitch it to the rest of the studio. So yeah. it, we'll get calls, you know, from, you know, uh, and we usually look, work on like, you know, five to ten projects at a time. Um, mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, it's just a you know, have a really strong team here too that an art director, uh, other lead artists to, to kind of run the shows so that, you know, they, um, so that they're overlapping correctly and all attention's being put on to each show. Um, but a lot of it, a lot of times we get hired right at the beginning even sometimes before there's a script, like some could be like a book, uh, you know, idea or a remake, uh, like of an old movie and they say, Hey, we want to remake this, but we don't, we're working on the script and we actually need help designing, um, the, uh, uh this, the, the actual, uh, the movie so we actually need concepts to help the writers so we'll be we'll be brought on and and it's so it's different every time it's but what is what's great is that we're usually at the very beginning uh and Mm -hmm. what's sad is that we're not sometimes we're on through the entire process but after it gets greenlit sometimes and it it moves on because they're going okay we're going to go to canada and we're going to work on it Uh, now that i got greenlit thanks for helping us get it greenlit uh (laughs) it was like ah geez. Uh, but a lot of times, you know, we, we'll work yeah. on stuff like we worked on uh um uh ready player one and uh and I've had and I've had the cool. opportunity to work with Spielberg on several projects like AI, uh War of the Worlds and uh um and then uh, uh Falling Skies and a bunch of other like TV shows. But then um this uh this one was like a you know a big one. And so we were working closely with a production designer uh on this and uh and it was one of those that uh, we st- we were on it for two years. So it was it was because this is one of those strange uh, projects that were um, uh, that the the writer of the book. I, and this is this may not be true, but this is what I heard rumor is that he wrote a book that could not be made into a film. It was like you know he just wanted a good story, and he d- he wasn't even thinking about like oh someone's going opt- to option to make it into a movie. It's like I just like uh, I want to make this this a really good story out of the future of like. Uh, how we live our life, you know, in, in a unique way of uh, being disconnected. And so I think that uh, mm. uh, this gave, I think that that challenge gave Spielberg, you know, an opportunity to go, oh, geez, I'm, I'll take this on. And, and uh, you know, and and there was a lot of like of his movies influenced in there too from the 80s. Um, so we ended up creating a lot of the designs for the avatars, the main characters, and and it went on for like two years. But how we were approached was, uh, you know, the production designer called up and said, "Hey, we we're hiring a bunch of artists, you know, to kind of get you know some ideas for this for Spielberg." And and uh, once we started, it wasn't it was a scenario that was rare because a lot of times production designers hire an individual artist, but we are a company, so and a company yeah. of artists. And there's not there's not that many out in the world, I, th- I think, that do exactly what we do as as designers, because um, we're a design heavy visual effects house. And so a lot of visual effects houses are. Have will hire designers uh, freelance wise, but we will have like a, a design team in in house. So what we have is what, what uh. we have is very rare, uh, and uh, which is great. And I didn't expect that, that was you know I wasn't going out to say hey I want to try something completely different. I just want I was just trying to find my way into as a designer in visual effects to uh, create a company um, that I could sur- survive. Right. But part of survival is being unique. You know that's the thing. So. Uh, doing it without knowing it sometimes is is a happy blessing. <laughs>
1: <laughs> for sure, man, for sure. That's super cool. So, all right. So then you, uh, so that's how you generally get started, or I guess it's a little bit different, like you said, every time. So if you get a script or you get a story that you're interested in, what is the process? Do you break it down on your own first did you sit down with the producer or the filmmaker first or like how do you how do you personally generally like to do
0: yeah usually if if there is a script like uh then we'll break it down based on the you know the first initial conversation like we'll get a call from either a producer and say hey we got this project we'd like to um uh hire you guys for designing the creatures or the world or something like that and um and these are, the, these are the things to look out in the script. So, but we're sending the script over, signing an NDA, you know, blah blah blah. So, and then we end up reading it and breaking it down, and then um, and then having an initial meeting if there is a director, uh, having a meeting with them based on what we've read, and and now and then start to pick his brain on like his thoughts, you know, like okay, so this is what the creature does in the in the script. Um, what were you thinking? You know, the tone is. It's like you know, all the, you ask all the questions that that don't aren't conveyed in the script. And those are those are the things right. that you're hoping to get some answers. And a lot of times you do. Sometimes you don't. It's a sometimes you're it's like, you know, I'm I'm not quite sure. I'm not I didn't really think about the creature. Uh but um, you know, just just have fun with it. And it was like, well that that can sound like a uh you know uh you know for creatives like you know a blast, but and that's sometimes the worst because then you're you can go around in circles yeah. because no one
1: Right, you don't have the restrictions, you don't have the border or the inspiration, that's yeah,
0: and I prefer I think a lot of you know creatives prefer to have structure or have like a direction, um you yeah. know because if it, if it would be different if I was directing it, and sometimes if what I do in situations like that is I try to. Come up with uh, in that room. It's like okay, before we actually get into it, I understand that you're not clear, or you don't have a really good clear idea what this should look like, or be or its tone, or anything like that. But what if it's like this, this, this? And I'll will point out a bunch of stuff until I I start to hear like you know, oh, that sounds cool, you know, that kind of a thing, and then right. work on down that path. Because you know, I definitely before we start designing, I want to have an idea. I want to some kind of a, a layout because doing stuff like in the blue sky, if they have you know, endless amount of money, that's fine. It's like, and we, but, but there, there's no, there's no scenario that that's the case. I mean, sometimes they'll come in they'll go, Oh yeah, we have blue sky. And it's like, Oh, but we only have like, you know, a half year rate that we can do it. It's like, well, that's not much of blue sky <laughs> <Yeah>. then. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but that's generally what, I mean, it seems to be that way all throughout the business at this point where budgets are like incredibly micro budgets. Like, I know the stuff that I'm working on right now, being a quote unquote first time director, uh, you know, I'm restricted to under five million for, for my first movie, which I hate because, uh, for conceptual stuff that gets, that gets very difficult because every dollar counts and I'm a completely visual oriented director. So I like to have everything prepped, everything prepared, everything boarded, everything designed ahead of time. And it's just about trying to find the money, um, and put aside that money to go, okay, this is money for, for conceptual. It's difficult. It's very difficult. Mm, yeah. And like in the modern sort of, especially horror, in the modern horror marketplace right now where studios want to do them for as cheap as possible and make as, as big of a return as possible.
0: Oh know? yeah. And what we're finding too, we're trying to change, we we have this tech, this process, uh, a lot of people have inherited the same kind of a name, but is, we call it sketch to screen, which is basically this idea that we design it uh, upfront so that we, and we have this entire process where um, everything's designed through the process. We, we nurture it all the way and if do the f- visual effects. It's being designed for the end result. So you're designing at the beginning for what the, the end results going to be on screen. And oh. so uh, sometimes that works, but a lot of times what we try, and it's a very difficult thing because I think that what visual effects has, has done in a lot of ways, it's, it's, it's been amazing because we've been able to create things that, that are just so mind blowing that it's like how, you know the, the every any imagination you have can be created if you have enough money um it seems but except for making uh ct humans it's that uncanny valley thing and then then it just all breaks down which <laughs> is not there yet but what's what is amazing what's happened and it's not a good thing uh, but i think it's hopefully turning around is that a lot of studios look at it like uh as a benefit for them, because they'll fix it in post, and that, and that's you know always kind of a thing that you he- hate to hear that, where it's like you go, oh, oh well, let's just fix it in post. It's like this don't work. We're wasting money on set. You know, like we can't figure this out. Let's uh, you know dump the 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 the, the practical stuff. We're just going and we've been on shows where that's happened several times. Like I worked on uh, Constantine, uh, um, and uh, uh-huh. we were on set with. Um, you know, some of the creatures and demons and stuff. And it was a great movie, uh, and a lot of fun to work on, but, but we were on set and it was, uh, and, uh, we built this whole puppet for mammon. It was like a, um, you know, animatronic, uh, you know, and it was going to be really cool. It was like, it was Satan's son. And, uh, yeah. And then we got on set and, uh, and Francis Lawrence, he's an incredible director, so it's nothing new. It was just that he wanted to do something that we just didn't know anyone wanted to to do. But then everybody comes in and goes, ah, don't worry about it. Let's just fix it in post. Get get the, the puppet off set. It was like, what? <laughs> so those kind of things are. Oh, no, and so, but what it does is it allows, and it's a really sad thing, because it allows for the studios, execs, to be the director a lot of times, because... Um, They'll, they'll come in and yes. they'll come in and say, okay, you know what? Uh, we don't have the money to do this right now. We don't even have the money to prep at the beginning, but we're actually going to put the money in so we can actually control it at the end. But what it makes is it just makes crap because it's, you're not, you're not allowing a director or really to think about the story. And a lot of times that's why films a lot of times feel like they're, they're piecemealed or they're not complete. The story broke down because, and there's so many reshoots that have to happen because it wasn't planned well to begin with. Um, All, all, all these problems that happen because of uh, that whole fix it and post mentality.
1: Oh, I hate that! As a director, I hate that mentality because then what happens? I I found this with digital too, and one of the things that I I do a lot of commercial work, and one of the places that I generally hate on set is the client monitor, and as a DP, I, I hate it. Like I I keep joking around with my camera techs where I'm like, we need to just rig a switch that breaks the monitor until the chef's ready. (laughs) Because there are too many chefs in the kitchen. There are too many cooks in that kitchen. And I feel like with the advent of the color grading, the way the color grading is these days, and how uh, a lot of the visual effects and fixing things and stabilization and all that stuff starts to add all of these little places that these extra chefs can put their hands in it and it's very difficult as a director to keep that especially when there's money involved where you're just like okay guys can you just let me let me play with this let me make sure that this is going to work out the way it's going to work out before you start to comment on you know the the the, the shade of blue in the background or some some other baloney that you never would have had your hands oh, yeah. in 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 the '80s, you know what I mean? In a period where we're shooting on film and and it's being processed and it's still done "quote unquote" magically through the photo.
0: Yeah, process, and everybody's you know? like, you know, just they're relying on the creatives like that they did their job, and it's like, and what they, they get in the end result is they're probably ultimately uh, happier that they're not. then it's like, well, you got yeah, it is what it is. Uh, yeah, right, right, right exactly. now it is exactly. It's, yeah, it's like too much. You know, especially if you have like a committee-based scenario where there's too many cooks in the kitchen. It's it's the worst. Uh, and we deal with that oh. a lot, you know, but commercials, yeah, I've worked on commercials too, so I know exactly what you're talking about.:
1: yeah. Oh, dude, you got too, way too many of. That. And, and one of the things I think one of the reasons why I love practical so much, um, and in the piece I send you, uh, you'll be able to see it. Um, I knew that for the short that I was doing, I didn't have the money to do CG mm-hmm. correctly, and I, I feel like if you don't do CG right, then CG looks Oh like yeah. Crap. Um, and I feel like optically. There's something really magical about finding the mistakes when you're shooting through glass and shooting through lens, and you can find these really beautiful accidents that happen, uh, like oh, practically. Yeah. And as a director, that, that those are really great because you you see them physically and you go, whoa, whoa, whoa! Actually, go to that shot and let's move that light and let's let's try to make this thing really pretty here. And one of the things I did on my short. I knew I had uh, one of the creatures in our movie was this microbiolo- uh, this microscopic creature sort of fluid. And I, I knew it needed to move and I wanted to puppeteer it. So I did the research on ferrofluid and magnetic fluid and how to puppeteer magnetic fluid. And I teamed up with a microbiologist um, who's also a photographer. And we shot all of our creature effects through microscopes on like sets at the surface oh, of the wow. And we did all this stuff. Oh, oh this is said, awesome. We did all this really cool microscopic stuff. And you look at it and you go, oh my God, that, that looks really great. And then I got the opportunity to go pitch to a lot of big, big places, like you know, producers that make giant robots and that mm-hmm. kind of shit. And I, I get to sit in the room with these guys and they're sitting there going like, wow, this CG is really great. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like, dude, it's not CG. And if it was CG, it, uh, at my budget level and with the amount of time that we had to do this, it never would have had as much character because there are too many cooks in the kitchen and i'd be i'd be fighting my way through those cooks to find a happy accident that i found in the basement of a scientist's house in pennsylvania with yeah. three guys you know there's something so nice oh, yeah, about that yeah sure and it, and I, that leads me to my next question with you where as a guy that could do all this, right? So you do practical, you've done makeup, you do CGI stuff. When you're looking at a script and you're reading something, at what point do you feel like it should be practical? And at what point do you feel like it should be CGI?
0: Well, yeah, there's a lot of times when I'll read something and it's, uh, and if it's explained in a certain way or if it's, it's early on, I'll, I'll, I'll have my own uh, opinion on it. Um, so it's, it's definitely in the script. A lot of times that, um, if there's enough information in the script that describes the creature, uh, the character, then I'll know uh, how I would approach it. And usually, I ask, you know, the director when I meet him. It's like after I read the script, I go, "Hey, so uh, were you thinking this can be practical or CG?" Because I and I don't want to mm-hmm. even voice my opinion. I just want to hear what he says uh, first. And if he goes, "Well, I was I was wanting to do it practical," okay, well, this is now that I you want to go practical. This is what I was thinking how it could possibly work, and this is what I'll design it around based on that. And so, yeah, I'll usually I because I don't want to put uh, I don't want to spend the director uh, unless they ask me, which I've had. It's been bizarre. There's a couple of projects where, uh, a clients come in and they go, uh, "Okay, I'm not going to tell you anything. What do you think? And uh, and what would you do?" And I go, and I keep thinking that's an interesting question because it's like it'd be di- it'd be, if I was a director that makes that's a very appropriate uh, question, but since I'm just the one that's um, you know trying to fulfill the director's vision. I want to hear his. I want to hear his right. vision first, um, because then it's a right. it's a already, and it's not necessarily always the case because sometimes they just want to pick my brain first and go, okay, cool, that's we're on the same page, and that you know kind of a thing that they're almost trying to read me to see if uh, we're we see eye to eye on certain things, uh, but sometimes it's it's the, fa- <laughs> the fact that they have no vision whatsoever, and so it's like, and they're trying to get ideas through it, which is okay, and I want to help, um, but. But a lot of times, again, it's like when I read the script, I'll have my own opinion, and uh, and so, like we worked on Stranger Things, you know, worked on the Demogorgon, we designed it, and uh, it was interesting because the directors, uh, the Duffer Brothers, they really wanted to do the '80s type of uh, approach on everything. So they, um, so when it came to the Demogorgon, uh, it was uh, you know, it was like, hey, I want this to be a guy in a suit, and I read it, and it's like, yeah, that could be a guy in a suit for sure. And uh, we started doing some designs, and it was, it was actually one of the fastest design processes that I've ever done because um, t- sometimes it takes weeks to months you know, to get a character that's, that's you know, supposed to stand out and be iconic. Um, this one was one yeah. that they, just, they didn't have that much information in the script, and I actually asked him, I go, so uh, how do you see these, this, uh, this, this creature? And he goes, well, I see a tall, lanky character that, uh, that has no face, but it has to eat people. And It's like, okay, and I go anything else and go no, just just have fun and that but that was actually in a weird way that's enough information uh because then it's like yeah. okay i have now I have an imagination where I can go with that um the no face has to eat people, but it's tall and lanky, so I know it's bipedal, you know like uh you know it's and he wanted to be a guy in a suit, so all that stuff made it easy to d- design with uh and we got there really quick. Hmm. The problem is, is is the scripts were still because, uh you know it's uh it was the first one, and they were, and they were still writing the script for what else it had to do. So when we designed it, I didn't realize at the, at the time that it was going to have to break through walls and all this other stuff. And so there was a lot of problematic aspects of, of a, a guy in a suit being able to do this, that kind of stuff. Um, and so right, right. that's what we were pushing. Uh, like, well, here let's do a test um, and design it uh, or you know show you show a desi- uh, kind of a motion test. Uh, other characters, so we designed it in 3D. Um, it, it was it was easy enough for us to actually just kind of do some sims and have it like tear through a wall and uh, and when they saw it, the director saw it, they go, okay, this is it, this is perfect. You guys are doing the visual effects too, so yeah. Oh, cool. <laughs> and, and so, but they were That's able crazy. to use a guy in a suit for like some of the shots, but then the other ones and then the climax, I guess the last one, you know, were. Uh, um, the creature gets torn apart and stuff like that then you know it's it was being developed as we were designing it so those are that's where it becomes sometimes problematic to uh, come up with you know the what is it what it, what is the design going to be for the for everything you know for for everything it has to do um
1: yeah and it, it seems like it's always at least for me as a storyteller it always comes down to that third act because you're trying to build especially when you're developing a creature movie and you're trying to build a creature, the most exciting stuff is always the first and into the second act where you don't really see the creature. There's a mystery about it. You're trying to figure Mm -hmm. this thing out. You can be, it's very much in the shadows. It's very much playing that. Um, And then as you start to get into the third act, especially with a modern audience, they want the stakes built higher. They want to see something big and it has to build to that point. And then it's like, okay, what is the restrictions and what is the limitations of a, of a creature or a guy in a suit for that scenario, as opposed to that freedom with the CGI. And then there's the other side of it too, where you see people that just go off the rails with it in CGI territory because they can at this point. And then it, it almost feels too disconnected. Yeah. It's this weird balance that I'm definitely trying to find as a, as a storyteller myself, like how do you play into the third act and, and you know, and, and, can it still be can it still be practical if you're playing the yeah. third act yeah yeah that's
0: that is the the uh the trick these days because there is a lot of like um uh, abilities to hide a lot of stuff until but the third act you have a, a contemporary audience that wants to they're going to want a payoff at some point and how the and the payoff yeah. uh can't necessarily be like the old way it's been done just because it's uh it, it'll be uh anticlimactic with you know in a lot of ways, or at least it will seem that way, because you're competing with everything else. It's taking advantage of uh, of uh, either old CG or something, or doing it in ways that you know budgets that they can't afford it with, and you may not have the budget. Or the so yeah, it's to come to be clever with how you're actually going to approach it. Um, but I think it's, and that also comes back to the design. You know, like what is uh, the design that if you want to do it practical, that you want to you know, know that you can do it that way. It'll still be, you know, unique and iconic because the way I'm going to shoot it, the way I'm going to portray it, maybe the sound design, everything else that comes together, but I'm not going to build something or design something that's going to be too difficult for my budget. Uh, and so that, that's yeah. we try to help yeah. with that process where we're designing too, because knowing what the complications, since we do my background doing makeup effects and knowing a bit of the cost and in, in that uh, and uh, the... Um, the digital aspect of it to help guide you know a director but a lot of times you know it's it's not even the director it's the studio that that comes in with their ideas the 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 committee uh <laughs> scenario where it's like even if it's a you know it's like uh not a big studio but the thing is now those big studios are are doing these little little uh um uh horror films right now because they know that that's an easy way to make money
1: oh sure like universal and Blumhouse yeah. house and like uh all these places and there's some really amazing little movies that are being made from that um but uh you know like some of like like Spectre vision i'm a i'm a huge fan of Spectre vision right now because i think that they uh, are coming at it from the right angle especially the way they love uh like european uh horror and they're very much into the small sort of practical stories which I, I mean, uh, I'm a product kid of the '80s as well, so I, I kind of miss a lot of that stuff. So maybe I don't know. Maybe I'm. Maybe I'm getting <laughs> <old>. Yeah. <laughs> you know, but uh, it's cool stuff, man. It's it's rad stuff. All right. Well, let me, let me make sure I let me make sure I tear through everything I wanted to ask you because we're we're kicking on an hour here, and I generally try to keep it at under an hour and twenty. So let me, um, you know, actually to continue with what we were saying Ex- expense wise and budgetary wise like do you is is and I know it's a general question and it all depends on the specifics of the script and everything else but um generally do you feel like uh practical stuff is is more expensive less expensive than CGI or does it balance itself out like cuz I know it, talking to being in the position that I'm in and talking to producers and folks and I'm like I want to do things practically you sort of get that raised eyebrow where it's like, oh my God, it's going to be really expensive. We do that's the practically. Mm. Like, is that a true sentiment from, from your perspective? Like well, the-
0: actually there is some truth depending on what you're trying to achieve with it. Um, and part of it is like, um, and I'm a huge fan of like, uh, puppets and everything else. And, but then you're also, what you're having to do a lot of times with, uh, you know, puppets is you have like a bunch of puppeteers and they're in SAG. So you have to pay. So on a budgetary thing, you're having to pay SAG, uh, um, you know, right. uh, actors and there's residuals all that other stuff and so studios look that down upon that if they don't have to um the the you know there is there's unions for uh, uh makeup there's unions for um uh, uh saga or, or for um puppeteers but there's not a union for uh, the visual effects so they don't have to pay a back end mm-hmm. on any of that stuff so there's a there's there's that aspect of it that they're thinking about uh, and it's, so there's some truth to that, and then there's there's also it's an interesting thing because you know doing makeup effects, you know it's a, you're also paying uh, for the actor to be there really early if you're doing a prosthetic and you're having to put them in, so you're paying extra for that. There's all these scenarios, but when it comes to like a um, certain creatures, uh, we look at it, and this is stuff that certain ones it's like okay, with well, this is going to be cheaper if you just do a CG because of you know all the different scenarios that you're that would cost so much just to make build like like you know the the hydraulic stuff you know that Stan Winston used to do like the dinosaurs mm-hmm. it's just you know they'll still do the puppet stuff like that because i think there's a an aspect of having especially for the raptors and stuff like that but but for the T-Rex any of that, any of that stuff they're not doing that anymore because of the scale it's like why spend the money to build a big T-Rex when it's going to be digital anyway um, but when the, but when right. they did the first right, one right, right. they they did it because it's like they it was uh, untested waters and it was uh and it was also like you know they could i could only i I forget how many shots there's not that many c g shots in the first movie because they just couldn 't afford it in some weird ways it was it was cheaper to do gigantic hydraulic uh monsters than it was uh c g but now it 's flipped it's um and part of why it's uh, the other aspect of why it's sometimes cheaper cg is that is it's so saturated more saturated than when i was in the 80s doing makeup effects where people were working out of their garage and almost everyone you knew was like and uh and hollywood was working on some kind of makeup <laughs> effects project now it's it's global and you have like um these tax incentives for doing it uh you know in, in different countries but then you also have like india you know that's cheaper uh um uh uh, you right, know, uh right. and China and there's all these different places that's that you know you wouldn't do makeup effects there but you may do some cg because it's it's uh, uh you're not going to have to pay them as much and uh and you're going to be able to get some of the stuff that's really you know would typically be more expensive here in, uh, in LA or anywhere else so those kind of things outweigh it's mm-hmm. all it's all about like you know getting a really um uh strong visual effects supervisor you know on that understands uh and you know and a good line producer too uh you know just to to break down like you know what is what's going to be the most cost effective after the design is done
1: exactly cool awesome uh, it's it's actually good to hear that because uh that's kind of what i was thinking. yeah
0: <laughs> so
1: it's 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 actually good to hear that well yeah. i love i love that you you're, um,
0: you're uh, cuz i love the whole uh um, uh, the, the live action aspects that you were talking about shooting with, because I we try to do that too. Visual effects here, like I'll give you a little quick if we have time. Um, is uh, sure. so because of my background, I uh, I try to if if we can try to do practical where we can for even the visual effects. So on uh, Stranger Things for the Demogorgon organ, there was you know the uh, the mouth is all those those weird petals and they open up. There's all the teeth. Um, and it's a TV budget, TV time of like having to turn it around. So we had two different departments the, uh, working on the, the, the spit and the sli- saliva and one was all CG. Uh, and then one was just, uh, one of my guys with black gloves, black, uh, um, uh, curtain or, uh, you know, a <laughs> backdrop. And, uh, we lit it with the stuff called ultra slime and, uh,
1: Oh, I know. Yes. I know. Ultra Slim, yeah, Ultra Slim. so
0: we did that, and we 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 already animated, roughed animated the the mouth opening up, and we you know it's like okay, it's r- roughly around here. So we did like about twenty or thirty different like takes of his hand like opening up and slime coming out and dripping and all that stuff, and we gave that to the compositors, and like within you know they had an endless supply of real slime that they could just ma- you know track on, which the tracking programs have gotten so easy that it became so much cheaper to do it that way faster. Than hiring a sim guy that was still working on it, trying to figure out, you know, how the slime would look real. Um, and the thing is, there's a lot of there's <laughs> great uh, programs that do it, and that, you know, there's companies that that's they pump that stuff out, and it looks amazing. But but sometimes a CG slime looks like CG slime. So uh, so we try to find we try to find those shortcuts. Oh. You know, there's a bunch of other things that we do that way on for visual effects, like just film it, put it in, and have a comp comp artist like, uh, you know, comp that into the shot because it's real and it's going to look real.
1: It's so cool, man. And, and and speaking of Ultra Slime, in my flick, we use it. And back to like those happy accidents that happen optically, I think we you'll see there's a whole sequence where there's a character thrashing around and the slime is sort of stretching through the air. And what was happening strangely on set, we're shooting at very slow motion. Um, it started to uh, like dry and evaporate and float Ooh. in the air around the person, which was something that I never would have yeah. even thought about. And and just seeing it on camera and just be like, what is happening? That is the coolest looking thing ever. Um, And it was just because we did it practically. As a director, I wouldn't have even thought about going to guys like you saying, hey, what if it floats in the air around them? You know what I mean? You just, you know, I, I think there's this big myth. And sure, I'm sure that there are a few directors out there that are born with the ability to, you know, like they come out of their mom with the ability to create worlds. But I think a lot of it is just... Reacting to what you see and reacting to your options and reacting to uh, what is presented to you and understanding when you see a path down a certain road creatively how to take that path and how to yeah. inspire that path that's a that's a big part of directing I think and um, and I'm not saying that you can't get that through CG I think there's I think it's just a whole other process where it just seems and I haven't done much of it so I'm, I'm tapping <laughs> out of my ass but it just it it seems like it's, it's more about me giving instructions and tell me if I'm wrong, but it's more about me saying, Hey, here's what I'm thinking. You guys going and working on that stuff. CG, I either look at some dailies or come down and check out some of that stuff and go, wow, you're going off on a good tangent. Let's get on that road. And let's. it just seems like a, a lot longer process than if you were seeing something accidental on set, and you were able to go down that road just by turning the camera, oh yeah, the road,
0: right? no, I think you're, I think you're. I mean, yeah. it's all different for different scenarios, and uh, and I, but I agree. I think that there's on set accidents are amazing, and those are the kind of things that sometimes you would never even think about. And you like the, what the scenario you you talked about, which I think is those kind of things. You, it's it's hard to imagine that you have. You could have given the instructions for someone to come up with that because you wouldn't have exp- you wouldn't have ever thought of it. Um, here's another flip right. side of this, which is kind of interesting that happened to me. Okay, so going back to Stan Winston, um, when I started there, uh, I'm finishing my story there. That was way back then where I basically told him I'm not interested in you know continuing makeup effects. Um, I'll be an art direct, you know I can art direct certain things, but I really want to focus on visual effects. Uh, and he was like, "Well, that's mm-hmm. great." I, James Cameron and myself created uh, Digital Domain, uh, which is you know a big visual effects house, and uh, they did mm-hmm. Titanic and all that o- other fun stuff. But um, but he goes, and he's you know he was on the board and stuff like that. But he had no more like control. But he said, "What I want to do is I have a makeup effects house. I'd love to have like a little visual effects um, uh, part of that that we can do enhancements on our vi- on our." up and I thought, oh this is amazing, this is the best of all worlds that kind of scenario so he so we started to create that yeah. and it was called Stan Winston digital and um and we worked on a few things, but the first project that when I first started there uh Steven Spielberg uh had was starting on AI and uh and we had just bought these two computers and put Softimage on it, and I was gonna do his like a kind of a showreel thing uh just to start off until we actually had a visual effects job, but he goes. He goes. Oh, before you start on that, just I want you to design some robots for this movie AI. So I started sketching it out, and Spielberg liked one of my sketches, and he said, and uh, Stan came back, and he goes, Hey, Spielberg really liked this sketch. Uh, I don't want you to get on the pencil or do it uh, anymore. I want you to get in that computer, that animation computer, and create this uh, design that way. And I was like, Wait, that's impossible. I can, you know, that would take forever. It's not made to do that. It's 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 a it's only made for animation. Because he goes, You'll figure it out. I'll be back next, at the end of the week and and it was very intimidating but then what it did is it made me think outside the box and so i started doing you know these the shapes based on my design and and uh and what was interesting and this is where the accidents which i did, i would have never thought in cg you'd come up with accidents but uh this is where the accidents design comes through and i think there's and effects we kind of sometimes do it too but uh is as i was designing it, then i started thinking okay now i got the shape it's kind of cool it's going to be translucent uh, but I want it to have an outer skin, but I want to see inside the body, so but what is that outer skin translucency going to have on it? So I just started going through like textures. I had a camera, and I was taking pictures of different things around the office, and I took a picture of my uh, um, my headlight of my car, because I thought, oh, it's a, it's going to be a robot, so it might be kind of cool. Uh, but then I tried a bunch of other stuff, more organic stuff, because uh, this this particular robot was, if you remember the movie, it's the ones that look more like aliens at the end, but they're they were called they were called the, the specialists yes. or something like that, and everybody thought they were were aliens because it was just um, I don't think it was really I, I'm not quite sure, but why people got confused because I knew the story, but they were just the more advanced AI uh, that were digging up the uh, the kid because he was a missing link to what they were, uh, which is I guess the basis of the story some to some extent. Um, but with that, what getting back to my experimental is I started to just slap on textures, and there was this aspect of um, way back then is is that uh, right now we use these things called polygons. when We actually sculpt, and you have to do these things called UVs, which actually help push uh, the texture, like wrap the texture around the model. Uh, it kind of guides mm-hmm. it. But way back when, when I was doing this, I was using these things called NURBS. And so it basically had its own, like uh, like if you put a texture on it, it would wrap itself automatically around it. So then I could experiment with a bunch of things, and I and I experimented with, like, the headlight of my car. And it was after, like, three or four different things, and it all, all of a sudden i go, wait, that's kind of cool. I would have never thought of that pattern that it created around the entire body. And it was like an accident. And they huh. actually, that ended up being the final design of the movie. But it was weird. It was weird because it was, huh. like, that kind of thing. It's like, that's where I realized, okay, I would, it's the same idea that you were talking about in the physical world, but I was able to to do something in the digital world because of, there's there's algorithms and everything else and you just throw something at it and you go oh wow that's fucking cool I would have never ever thought that and that's what's kind of uh you know exciting um in a weird way and that's where I got hooked is like designing and CG it's like so that became my uh you know my main tool uh for designing and what was interesting is Spielberg uh saw the designs and and um ILM was designing more traditionally, and we, everybody was designing on that show traditionally, like with pens, pen, paper, maybe some Photoshop. But I was the first one doing, from what I know, the first one doing actually using an animation program to design a creature. Uh, and so when he saw this, he basically said, stop everybody from designing anything on the show. Whoever's doing this is designing all the robots. But, because what it did is it allowed him <laughs> to see his creature, his characters, uh, finished before he even shot anything. Yeah, so, so it's kind cool, of exciting. Uh, so there's a, there's like a experimental or accidents that can happen in the computer. You just got to know what you're. You know, I guess the way
1: the, that's it. That's good to know. It's it, like uh, you're you're rest assuring. Me <laughs> yeah, right.
0: I mean every scenario. Like there's stuff on set. You know, like you're saying that that you would have never. I mean, there. I, I'm pretty much. I'm more like a, a pro uh, practical anyway. When you're shooting a lot of stuff as much. Just if you if you can get away with it, if you can do it, because it's like. Why you know have something that someone has, especially for actors, that they have to guess at what's there? You know, it's like yeah. You know, so there's sure. there's so many yeah, and plus the the other accidents of you know even a puppeteer or something like that performing in a way that you didn't expect, opposed to an animator that's really thinking about it and becomes in some ways uh, it may have a lot of expression, but it feels clinical in a weird way because it's been overly thought of. Yeah,
1: I mean, and that's the whole you know that's the. That's the big benefit of that mocap stuff now because mocap is one of the big reasons why a lot of this stuff looks just completely almost photorealistic as far as movements are concerned because they're basing it on actual human. Yeah, and you can
0: get those accidents that way, which is good. Yeah, so yeah. stuff, man.
1: I could sit here all afternoon and get really nerdy with you on this stuff. But I really shouldn't. <laughs> well, it's, it's, yeah, it's been fun. I mean, uh,
0: there's a lot of stuff I could go on, like, and maybe we'll do another one because uh, we have our own IP we're creating. We have a production side. So uh, so maybe, oh, maybe yeah. we'll do another yeah, thing later sure. on uh, just on that because uh, it's that's another aspect that we're getting into our own horror films. And, you know, so we're not just a service-oriented oh. scenario. We're actually IP creators. Uh,
1: yeah. Awesome man that's that's yeah. super cool and to be IP creators coming from your perspective, which is the creature the creature yeah. design perspective so, so you know getting getting that that initial story, uh, from from create from like creature designers, is, yeah. is cool man.
0: That's really yeah. And good. the one thing is like yeah, you know yeah. going back, and I think you know for myself, and I think that just inspiration for other people is like you know always. I mean, this is just if I'm gonna give like a, my own like two cents uh, to uh, your audience, or mm-hmm. is, is if you can try to find like if there's a something that you find threatening, but you still want to be a part of it, you know, find the the positive in it by like I said, where uh, I realized I could, I could complete what I wanted to complete, but I had to learn something, just a tool to complete something that, uh, would, that I already knew already. And I think that you just have to find the angle as you grow forward. I think it's everything I, I as we advance into anything, it's always about like how can I, how can I use this tool to, uh, um, uh, to achieve what I've always wanted to achieve. And uh, so I think it's just, you know, it's, and, and, you know, it's, it's great. I feel fortunate to be, you know, since I was 19, I was in the movie business to, and now I'm uh, 53 and I love it, if not more than at least as much as I did from the day I started. So,
1: yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, That is awesome. And and I would ask you this, I, I guess my final question to you would be for. Uh, any like young directors or any young filmmakers that are out there that are creating or coming up with ideas that are going to have creatures in it and creature effects in it and they're going to uh, eventually collaborate with folks like you, what advice, like what, what do you wish that you could have told a lot of directors before they came to you with something that you feel like could have been better, or could have been different. Like, what would you say to a, a young director?
0: Well, I think that uh, the main thing, and I think that what it is is just you know, listening, listening to everybody. You know, like listening to, uh, you know, it's it's young directors, and, and you know, as young directors, you know, sometimes can come across is that they they may because you have to be strong. You feel like you know everything, but part of it is listening, listening to everyone around you, because that's what's going. You're going to learn from. Um and I think that as a you know, for the creature part of it, there's a lot of times we, you know, uh you'll have a strong opinion, which is great, but listen to the uh, the, the people that are creating it too, because they all they want to do is help, you know, help help you create uh, your vision. So part of it is just, you know, it's it's listening and, and what you take in and what you you accept. Uh but uh I hope that's helpful. I don't know if that <laughs> is, but
1: I think that's, I think that's perfect advice, man. It's, I think that, and that is the advice that I usually get from most really. people. <laughs> so you're, you're yeah. on point dude. Cause it, it, you know, this business and one thing it took me a while to learn myself was that this job is a social job and you start early on, at least for me, I started like locking myself in my own space and creating my own little pieces and learning technique. And you get very micro focused on the art of filmmaking and, and your skills And then as you start to get older and you start to spend a little bit more time and your productions get a little bit bigger, you start to realize like, oh, wait a minute, 90% of my job is interacting with other human beings and trying to to process an idea that I have, process something that's in my brain, trying to teach myself how to take an abstract and use my mouth to feed it to you so that you at least get 60% of what it is that I'm Mm -hmm. talking about. Um, And then on top of everything, it's like, Imagine if you're a painter and each one of your paintbrushes has their own life has their own their own Stresses in life has their own ideas their own inspirations. You just have to learn How to collaborate and listen and I think that your advice is right. on Yeah, the point no,
0: yeah collaboration is is the key You know if you can't collaborate with your team, then you're not going to have anything
1: So thanks for listening guys and Like I said, I promised you a great episode. Uh, Was that not cool, right? (laughs) I'm super excited because I feel like I have like a new insight into how the whole system works. And I've got kind of a plan for what I want to do, which is awesome. And it's fascinating to hear um, how much Aaron has embraced the CGI stuff and how he makes that work. And it was really cool to hear... Because my whole philosophy has always been that uh, there are better mistakes found when you shoot things optically, but it was interesting to hear how he found a lot of really fantastic stuff through quote unquote mistakes when doing stuff CGI. That's comforting to me because I know a lot of the stuff that I want to do is going to require that technology, it's going to require that uh, trick and that stuff. So. Very excited to have him on the show. Uh, I'm going to try to have him on the show again in the future because he's got a lot more to talk about. Um, And uh, if you have a moment and you haven't done so already, which I'm sure you have, um, definitely go check out uh, Aaron Sims Creative. um, And I'll put all the links below. Uh, In the meantime, I just once again want to thank everybody for listening to this show. Um, I've got a bunch of things going on right now that I can't talk about the huge I'm not allowed to talk about stuff until it happens, but rest assured that things are happening and I'm working away at it. Um, and you know, I have, I was just watching uh, the other night, a documentary on the uh, recent advancements with robot technology and this whole uh, new change that's happening to us as as a society where uh we're losing it seems like we're losing a lot of jobs to automation and everything else and it's a scary thing to watch happen and you know there's a lot of really amazing things that always happen with the advancements in technology but there's also like it starts to hit this point watching these movies and maybe it's just cuz I'm a sci-fi nerd and a tech nerd and I'm a kid from the Terminator movies and all that kind of stuff. You start to see a dystopian future taking shape uh as we rapidly jump into this technology hole that we're in. And we're getting to a point where through automation and robotics a lot of these basic jobs are being uh taken away and not just taken away but just it's the landscape is changing. And like I said, I'm all for advancements, as long as we're asking ourselves the simple question and what the show is essentially about, like, what is it that makes me happy? What is it that I want to do? How is it that I want to define my life? And uh, what am I going to do if I can't do that? And there's something interesting about us as a society right now where we basically judge ourselves based upon the work we do which is which is fascinating and i i i do it i know you probably do it so then let's ask that question what happens when when that work doesn't exist anymore and what happens when we don't have these things and then it's hard for me not to ask this question why are we doing this am i literally not going down to the store to save a few bucks Am I ordering this thing online to have it here tomorrow? Does it really make that much of a difference if it takes one day or five days to get shipped to me? I don't know. You know, at, at first, because we love to embrace these things, we love to embrace all the recent technology, we love to embrace iPhones and all that stuff. Um, you have to ask that question, like, where does it? Where does it? Where's this going? You know. And what, what's gonna happen? Are we all gonna end up on some like monthly salary from the government and then doing what? Plugged into video games and playing video games all day? I mean it's it's a weird thing. It was a very scary kind of doc. And I get it, documentaries are made to scare you, and they're made to to make you aware of these things. But I think the one question that I kept asking myself when I watched this piece, um, it wasn't like, why, why do we, why do we get on this path with technology? Because technology can be such a wonderful thing. It's, it really comes down to like, what makes us happy? Like, how do we define happiness as a modern day society? And is happiness money? And is happiness the things that we collect? Um, is happiness creation? Um, I don't know. And I think for everybody, it's a little bit different. And I... What I'm going to try to do with this show, and I think the reason why I went off on this tangent is that what I love about my job is that I get to celebrate and I get to be a part of all these really great trades, all this really fantastic human interaction that happens with directing. Um, and I I love it. I think sometimes some of the coldest stuff that I do in this business is when it's just me sitting down with a computer and just interacting with a computer or using, you know, stabilization algorithms and all this other stuff that are essentially just tools. And I always talk about that on the show. All this stuff is supposed to be a tool for us to do what it is that we love to do. And it just seems like more and more we're being controlled by the tools and more and more we're being manipulated by the manufacturers of these tools and by the manufacturers of, these, of, of, of this technology. And it's hard not to be cynical about it. It's, it's hard not to sit there and go, okay, so this is just another publicly traded company that wants to see a better quarter. They wanna see better returns every quarter that comes out. And you can't physically do that unless you start stripping away costs, right? I mean, at some point it's gotta plateau right and then at what point is enough enough at what point is enough money enough money and it's very simple to sit here and go well there's you know the top percentage of people out there making all this loot but they're publicly traded companies in a system that we've got set up where if your job if if my company went public then the people that have invested in that are just essentially looking for cash and not necessarily interested in building and making these things I don't know. This is from an idiot that barely knows anything about anything. Just acknowledging the change that's coming and acknowledging the fact that if we're not careful, we're literally going to do away with anything that defines us as people. It's crazy to think about. It really is. And I I, I try not to get too political on this show. Um, and I think the other reason I bring this up is because it's very relevant to what we're doing on the show. I promise you on this, on this podcast, it is all about celebrating these creative outlets and focusing on the things that make each of these individuals that are on my show happy. And if you listen, you'll find that there's a lot of common threads here and that, At the end of the day, it isn't necessarily about the cash. At the end of the day, it isn't necessarily about standing on a stage and telling people that you're amazing. At the end of the day, it's about creating. It's about taking ideas and taking things that are in your mind and developing them into something really amazing and doing so with a bit of responsibility and understanding in how they're going to affect an audience how they're going to affect the world around them. And uh, I know, and maybe I'll try to get some uh, people that work in robotics, because I am in Boston and it is like home of MIT, so maybe I'll do a little bit of legwork and try to get somebody on the show. Because part of me wants to understand their thought process. When you are developing this technology and you are developing uh, this stuff that a corporation will essentially just take and literally... Replace human beings that are doing it with it. Are you just obsessed with the creation? Are you lost in the creation element? Do you think about the repercussions of this? And at the end of the day, does it just come down to the dollar amount? Ah, I don't know. This is a heavy, heavy thought. This is something that I've been thinking about all week, and I hope I'm doing it justice by off the cuff sort of talking about it. And I'll try to get somebody on the show so that you're not just hearing my fears and my opinion on it. We'll, we'll, we'll try to have this balance itself out a little bit. And I'm curious because I want to learn about it too. Um, so yeah, anyway, that's a little tangent that I went off on. This has been something that's been on my mind for a little while. I will say this though, please celebrate and cherish the fact that you can create something like celebrate and, and, and enjoy when you actually interact with a human being. I, I know we've become so antisocial with our stuff and with our phones and everything else. And when I literally go to my favorite grocery store and I have people bagging groceries for me and people exchanging with, with me, I, I love it. I actually love to have a conversation with somebody and talk about the food and talk about their day. There's something really nice about that and, and being somebody that can be locked in this room uh, recording podcasts or doing editing for days on days on end, it's very relieving to go out and remember that there are people out there. And if you're going to be telling stories, you have to be interacting with people, right? Like if you're going to write and develop a character, you actually have to interact with that person in real life. Um, so it's an interesting thing. Like I said, I'm not against the advancements in technology. There's been a lot of amazing things out there that have come out of it. But I'm just, I don't know. a bit. There's this, this cynic in me that's like, hmm, hey, yeah, great. Lyft shows up and now we're going to create all these jobs for people. They can drive cars around. And I have a lot of friends that make cash doing that. Cool, right? But at the end of the day, they're just using that cash for the development of the automated cars, which all those people that they've convinced to do that, claiming that there's going to be this source of income for them, and these people look at it as a career. What is it, like four years from now that they're going to be out of work immediately with automated cars in the market? Five years from now? You know? And they helped finance that. It's it's just weird. Have some foresight. You know what I mean? And if you're a person that has this foresight and you really don't care and you're like, okay, no big deal. Well, fine. But they're, it's just... There's so many people out there that aren't thinking about this, and then when it happens to them, uh, they are shocked. It's like this shock and awe thing that happens. There's technologies out there right now that are doing away, or trying to do away with the photographer in photography, right? Why would you support that? (laughs) Why the hell would you support that? You know for a fact that all these major studios that are doing these big movies, if they could figure out some sort of artificial intelligence that could replace a director, you bet your ass they'd do that. They'd buy like seven of them and they'd just go run these movies. Why would we support that? Why would we continue to support these, these companies that are doing that stuff? And there isn't some evil people in a chair somewhere like, whoa, rolling. Like, this is this is us. This is who we are. This is who we are as a, as, a, as a country. This is who we are as a planet right now. Everything needs to be efficient. Everything needs to be rewarding. Everything is like short serving, very quick. Give me something tasty. I want it in my mouth. I want it right now. And uh, no one's really thinking about the what's going to happen five years, ten years from now. You know what I mean? I would hate it if my job was gone because an algorithm took it over or artificial intelligence took it over because this job defines me i mean i'm defined by how i interact with people and having a great relationship those are all very important to me but this is this is how i define myself you know so i can't imagine being a truck driver that has grown into that business, has been in that business, maybe second generation in that business, that literally defines themselves as being this driver of trucks that loves that business, and their job is potentially gonna be gone in five years. Why? So that way so we can get a package two days earlier. You know? And they claim that it's gonna be cheaper for us. But is it really though? When they started to to bring forth the automated uh, checkout lanes in the grocery store Did the prices for groceries go down Because we had to do all the checkout stuff No they've they've gone up So I, I don't know I'm starting to get too political I'm going to try not to get down that path But it was an interesting doc It was on HBO It's a Vice doc I usually don't like Vice But they did a good job with this And uh, I would definitely check it out um, And just Just celebrate stuff That is made by people Who love what they do That's all I'm saying. And that's what the show's about. But what the fuck do I know? (laughs) I've been ranting and raving. This is the longest ending that I've done for an episode yet. I hope you guys enjoyed this episode. I love you for listening. I will see you next time.